For today's podcast, I bring you Kate Darling. What a great name. Kate is a researcher at the MIT Media Lab and a fellow at the Harvard Berkman Center. And she focuses on the way technology is influencing society, specifically robot technology. But her background is in law and in the social sciences. And uh, she's one of the few people paying attention to this. And this is, along with AI, going to become increasingly interesting to us as we integrate more and more autonomous systems into our lives. I really enjoyed speaking with Kate. We get into some edgy territory. As I think I said at some point, the phrase child-sized sex robots was not one that I was ever planning to say on the podcast, much less consider its implications. But we live in a strange world, and it appears to be getting stranger. So to help us all figure that out, I now bring you Kate Darling. I am here with Kate Darling. Kate, thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm delighted to be here. It's great to be able to do this. I'm continually amazed that we can do this, given the technology. But I first learned of you, I think, in a New Yorker article on robot ethics. And this is your area of focus and, and expertise. And this is an area that almost doesn't exist. You're, you're one of the few people focusing on this. So perhaps just take a moment to say how you got into this. Yeah, robot ethics is, it is kind of a, a new field, and it sounds really science fiction-y and strange. Um, but I, so I have a, a legal and social sciences background. And at some point, about five and a half years ago, I started working at the Media Lab at MIT, where there's a bunch of roboticists. And um, I made friends with them because I love robots. And I've, I've always loved robots. So we started talking and um, we realized that I was coming at the technology with, you know, some questions that they hadn't quite encountered before. And we realized that um, together there were some things that, uh, you know, some questions that, that were worth exploring that when you bring people who really understand how the technology works together with people who come at this from kind of a, you know, policy or social sciences or societal mindset, that, that can be interesting to explore. Tell people what the Media Lab is. It seems strangely named, but everything that comes out of it is incredibly cool and super diverse. What's going on over there at MIT? Yeah, it's a little hard to explain. The Media Lab is kind of, uh, to me, it's this building where they just stick a bunch of people from all sorts of different fields, usually interdisciplinary, or as they call it, anti-disciplinary, <laughs> and they give them a ton of money and then cool stuff happens. That's, that's basically yeah. what it, So there's everything from like economists to roboticists to people who are curing blindness in mice to artists and, and designers. Um, it's, it's really a mishmash of all sorts of very interesting people working in fields that aren't, don't really fit into the traditional categories of academia that we have right now. And so now your main interest with robots is in how are relating to them could well and may, in fact, inevitably change the way we relate to other human beings. Yeah, absolutely. I'm totally fascinated by the way that we treat robots like they're alive, even though we know that they're not, and the implications that that might have for our behavior. I must say, I'm kind of late to acquire this interest. Obviously, I've seen robots in science fiction for 
as long as I've seen science fiction. But it wasn't until watching Westworld, literally a couple of months ago, that I realized that the coming changes in our society based on whatever robots we develop are going to be far more interesting and ethically pressing than I realized. And this has actually nothing to do with what I thought was the central question, which is, will these robots be conscious? That is obviously a a hugely important question, and a lot turns ethically on whether we build robot slaves that are conscious and can suffer. But even short of that, we have some really interesting things that will happen once we build robots that escape the what's now called the Uncanny Valley. This I'll probably have you talk about what the Uncanny Valley is. And I think even based on some of your work, you know, you don't even have to get all the way out of the Uncanny Valley or even into it for there to be some ethical issues around how we treat robots, which we have no reason to believe are conscious. In fact, you know, we have every reason to believe that they're not conscious. So perhaps before we get to the edgy considerations of Westworld, maybe you can say a little bit about the fact that your work shows that people have their ethics pushed around even by relating to robots that are just these bubbly cartoon characters that nobody thinks are alive or conscious in any sense. (laughs) Yeah. We are so good at anthropomorphizing things, and it's not restricted to robots. I mean, we've always had kind of a tendency to name our cars and, you know, become emotionally attached to our stuffed animals and kind of imagine that they, they're these social beings rather than just objects. But robots are super interesting because they combine physicality and movement in a way that we will automatically project intent onto. So. I think that it's just, it's it's so interesting to see people treat even the simplest robots like they're alive and like they have agency, even if it's totally clear to them that it's just a machine that they're looking at. So, you know, long before you get to any sort of complex humanoid Westworld type robot, people are naming their Roombas, people feel bad for the Roomba when it gets stuck somewhere, just because it's kind of moving around on its own in a way that we project onto. And I think it, like it goes further than just being primed by science fiction and pop culture to want to personify robots. Like, obviously, you know, we've we've all seen a lot of sci-fi and Star Wars, and, you know, we, we probably have this inclination to name robots and personify them because of that. But I think that there's also this biological piece to it that's even more, um, that's even deeper and and really fascinating to me. So one of the things that that we've noticed is that people will have empathy for robots, or at least some of our work indicates that people will empathize with robots and be really uncomfortable when they're asked to to destroy a robot or do something, you know, mean to it, which which is fascinating. Does this pose any ethical concern? Because obviously it's kind of an artificial situation to hand people a robot that is cute and then tell them to mistreat it. But there are robots being used in, I think, isn't it like a baby seal robot that you're giving people with, with Alzheimer's or autism? Is contact with these surrogates for affection, does that pose any ethical concerns? Or is that just if, if it works on any level, it's intrinsically good in your view? I think I think it depends. I think there is something unethical about it, but probably not in the way that most people intuitively think. So I think, you know, intuitively, it's a little bit creepy when you first hear that, oh, we're kind of, we're using these baby seal robots with dementia patients, and we're giving them the sense of nurturing this thing that isn't alive. 
that that seems a little bit wrong to people at first blush, but I I honestly so if if you look at what these robots are intended to replace, which is animal therapy, it's interesting to see that they can have a similar effect and no one no one complains about animal therapy for, you know, <laughs> dementia patients. Right. It's something that we often can't use because of hygienic or safety or other reasons, but we can use robots because people will consistently treat them sort of like animals and not like devices. And I also think that, you know, for the ethics there, it's important to look at some of the alternatives that we're using. So with the baby seal, if if we can use that as an alternative to medication for calming distressed people, I'm I'm really not so sure that that's really an unethical use of robots. I actually think it's kind of awesome. Yeah. So one of the things that does concern me, though, is that this is such an engaging and, or in other words, manipulative technology that, and, and it's, you know, we're seeing a lot of these robots being developed for kind of vulnerable parts of the population, like the elderly or children. A lot of kids' toys are uh, have increasing amounts of this kind of manipulative robotics in them. So I do wonder whether, you know, the companies that are making the robots might be able to use that in in ways that aren't necessarily in the public interest, like get people to buy products and services or manipulate people into revealing more personal data than they would otherwise want to enter into a database. Things like that concern me. But those are more people doing things to other people rather than, you know, something intrinsically wrong about treating robots like they're alive. So has there been anything like that? Have any companies with toy robots or elder care robots done anything that seems to push the bounds of propriety there in terms of introducing messaging that you wouldn't want in that kind of situation? Yeah, I don't know any examples of like people trying to manipulate the elderly as of now. But I mean, we do have examples from you know, the porn industry and uh, having very manipulative chatbots that try and get you to sign up for services. So, and, and this was happening decades ago, right? So we, we do have a history of companies trying to use technology in advertising or, or say, you know, the in-app purchases that we see on, on iPads where there have been consumer protection cases where, you know, kids were buying a bunch of things and now, you know, companies have had to implement all of these safeties so that it requires, you know, parental override in order to purchase stuff. Like there's a history of, you know, we know, we know that companies, you know, serve their own interests and any technology that we develop that is engaging in the way that robots already are in their very primitive forms and will increasingly be, I think might pose a, a consumer protection risk. Or you could even, you know, think of governments using robots uh, that are increasingly entering into our homes and very intimate areas of our lives, governments using robots to, you know, collect more data about people and essentially spy on them. So there's this basic fact where any system that seems to behave autonomously doesn't have to be humanoid, doesn't even have to have a a lifelike shape. It doesn't have to draw on biology at all. As you said, it could be something like a Roomba. If it's sufficiently autonomous, it begins to kindle our sense that we are in relationship to another, which we can find cute or menacing or whatever we, we feel about it. It pushes our intuitions in the direction of this thing is a, a being in its own right. I believe you have a story about how a landmine diffusing robot that was insectile, like spider-like, 
could no longer be used, or at least one person in the military overseeing this project felt you could no longer use it because it was getting its legs blown off. And this was thought to be disturbing, even though, again, we're talking about a robot that isn't even close to being the sort of thing that you would think people would attribute consciousness to. Yeah. And then, of course, with design, you can really start influencing that, right? So whether people think it's cute or menacing or whether people treat it as a social actor, because there's this whole spectrum of, you know, you have a simple robot like the Roomba, and then you have a social robot that's specifically designed to mimic all of these cues that you subconsciously associate with states of mind. So we're seeing increasingly um, robots being developed that, that specifically try and get you to treat it like a living thing, like the baby seal. Are there more robots in our society than most of us realize? What is here now and what do you know about that's immediately on the horizon? Well, I think what's what's sort of happening right now is we've had robots for a long time, but robots have been mostly kind of in factories and manufacturing lines and assembly lines and kind of behind the scenes. And now we're gradually seeing robots creep into all of these new areas. So the military or hospitals, we have these surgical robots or transportation systems, autonomous vehicles. And uh, we have these new household assistants. A lot of people now have Alexa or Google Home or other systems uh, in their homes. And so I think we're, we're just seeing an increase of robots coming into areas of our lives where we're actually going to be interacting with them um, in all sorts of different fields and areas. So what's the boundary between, or is there a boundary between these different classes of robots? Yeah, I don't think there's any you know, clear line to distinguish these robots, also in terms of, you know, the effect that they have on people, you know, you see, depending on how a factory robot is designed, people will, you know, become emotionally attached to that as well. That's, that's happened. And we also, I mean, by the way, we don't even have a universal definition of what a robot is. Some of the robots I picture, like the robots I was picturing on an assembly line are either fixed in place, and we're just talking about arms that are constantly moving and picking things up, or they're kind of moving on tracks, but they're not roving around in 360 degrees of freedom. I trust there are other robots that do that in industry as well. Yeah. But like, so one question is, you know, is the inside of a dishwasher, is that a robot? Like, is that, is that movement autonomous enough? It's basically what the factory robots are doing, but we call those robots. We don't call the dishwasher robot. There's just this continuum of machines with greater and greater independence from human control and greater complexity of their routines, and there's no clear stopping point. Let's come back to this concept of the uncanny valley, which I've spoken about on the podcast before. What, what is the uncanny valley, and what are the prospects that we will get out of it anytime soon? Yeah, the uncanny valley is a you know, somewhat controversial concept that you can design something that is lifelike, but if as soon as you get too close to, I think for the uncanny valley, it's, it's specifically humanoid. If you get too close to something that looks like a human, but you don't quite match what it is, then it suddenly becomes really creepy. So people will like the thing, the more lifelike that it gets. And then once it gets too close, like the likability of it drops. Mm -hmm. It's like, zombies or something like something that's human but not quite human really creeps us out and then it 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 doesn't go back up again until you can perfectly like absolutely perfectly uh mimic a human and i think i i like to think about it more less in terms of the uncanny valley more in terms of 
expectation management, I guess. So I, I think that if we see something that looks human, we expect it to act like a human. And if, if it's not quite up to that standard, I think it disappoints what we were expecting from it. And, and that's why we don't like it. And, and that seemed, that's a principle that I see in, in robot design a lot. So a lot of the really, I think, compelling social robots that we develop nowadays are not designed to look like something that you're intimately familiar with. Like I have this robot cat at home that Hasbro makes and it's the creepiest thing. It, it like, cause, cause it's clearly not a real cat, even though it tries to look like one. Mm. And it, it, so it's very, it's very unlovable in a way. But I, I also have this baby dinosaur robot that is much more compelling because I've never actually interacted with a two-week-old Camarasaurus before. So it's much easier to suspend my disbelief and actually imagine that this is how a dinosaur would behave. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's so, so it's interesting to see how, you know, the, the whole Westworld concept, you know, before we, we could even get there, we would really need to have robots that are so similar to humans that we wouldn't really be able to tell the difference. What is the state of the art in terms of humanoid robots at this point? I mean, we are, I've never actually been in the presence of any advanced robot technology that's attempting to be humanoid. There are some Japanese androids that are, that are pretty interesting. I don't think, like to me, they're not out of the Uncanny Valley yet, but there's also some conversation about whether the Uncanny Valley is cultural or not. And also I think some research on that, which I don't think is very conclusive, but it might be that in some cultures, you know, like in, in Japanese culture, people are more accepting of robots, uh, that are that look like humans but aren't quite there because uh, you know people say that there's this religious background to it the that the Shinto religion uh, the belief that objects can have souls makes people mm. more accepting of robotic technology in general whereas in Western society we're more uh, creeped out by the this idea that a thing a machine could you know resemble a living thing in a way but I'm yeah I'm I'm not really sure and and. I mean, you should check check out the androids that that uh, Ishiguro in Japan is making because they they're pretty cool. He made one that looks like himself, which is interesting uh, to think about, you know, his own motivations and psychology behind that. But um, it is a pretty cool robot. I think, you know, just from a photograph, you might not be able to tell the difference. Probably in interacting with it, you would. So do you think we will get to a Westworld level life likeness? long before we get to the AI necessary to power those kinds of robots? Or, I mean, do you have any intuitions about how long it will take to climb out of the uncanny valley? That's a good question. I I honestly, I'm not as interested in, you know, how do we completely replicate humans? Because I see so many interesting design things happening now where that's not necessary. Hmm. Like we can create, we can already with and 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 robotic technology is very primitive at this point. I mean, robots can barely operate a fork, but we can create characters that people will treat as though they're alive. And while it's not quite Westworld level, if we move away from this idea that we have to create humanoid robots and we create, you know, a blob or you know some, we have a, a century of animation. Uh, expertise to draw draw on in creating these compelling characters that people can relate to and that move in a really expressive way. And I think that that's, 
you know, much more interesting. I think much sooner than than Westworld, we can get to a place where we are creating robots that people will consistently treat like living things, even if we know that they're machines. I guess my fixation on Westworld is born of the intuition that something fundamentally different happens once we can no longer tell the difference between a robot and a person. And maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe this change and all of its ethical implications comes sooner when, as you say, we have a blob that people just find compelling enough to treat it as though it were alive. It just seems to me that Westworld is predicated on the expectation that people will want to use robots in ways that would truly be unethical if these robots were sentient. But because on assumption or, or in fact they will not be sentient, this becomes a domain of creative play analogous to what happens in video games. If you're using a, a first-person shooter video game, you are not being unethical shooting the bad guys. And the more realistic the game becomes, the more fun it is to play. And there's this sense that, I mean, while some people have worried about the implications of playing violent video games, all the data that I'm aware of suggests they're really not bad for us and crime has only gone down in the meantime. And it seems to me that there's no reason to worry that as that becomes more and more realistic, even with virtual reality, it's going to derange us ethically. But watching Westworld made me feel that robots are different. Having something in physical space that is human-like to the point where it is indistinguishable from a human, even though you know it's not, it seems to me that will begin to compromise our ethics if we mistreat these artifacts. We'll feel not only feel differently about ourselves and about other people who mistreat them, we will be right to feel differently because we will actually be changing ourselves. You'd have to be more callous than, in fact, most people are to rape or torture a robot that is, in fact, indistinguishable from a person because all of your intuitions of being in the presence of personhood, of being in relationship, will be played upon by that robot, even though you know that it's been manufactured and, let's say, you, you've been assured it can't possibly be conscious. So the takeaway message from, from watching Westworld for me is that Westworld is essentially impossible. I mean, we would just be creating a theme park for psychopaths <laughs> and rendering ourselves more and more sociopathic if we tried to normalize that behavior. And I think what you're suggesting is that long before we ever get to something like Westworld, we will have, and may even have now, robots that, if you were to mistreat them callously, you would, in fact, be callous, and you'd have to be callous in order to do that, and you're not going to feel good about doing it if you're a normal person, and people won't feel good watching you do it if they're normal. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, we already have some indication that people's empathy does correlate with how they're willing to treat a robot, which is super interesting. And I, I, I like Westworld is just the perfect illustration of the problem. Um, and, and I, I love that it's <laughs> I love that you watched Westworld and even though you believe that, you know, if playing violent video games makes crime rates, you know, continue to go down. I, I don't know if you if you meant that in a in a causal way or not, but Oh yeah, no, no, I don't. I just presumably if it was causing people to be more violent, we would not see crime rates go down in the meantime. 
Yeah, I think so. I agree that the, the, the violence in video games research is completely inconclusive. And there's no reason to believe that we can't mentally compartmentalize in that case. Mm. And um, but we do know that we respond very differently to physical things than something on a screen. We have this more visceral response to the, the physicality of robots. And there's some research to suggest that we do treat physical robots more like a social actor. So like you increasingly get into this question of how much more muddled it gets in your subconscious to mistreat a robot versus, you know, a first person shooter game. And um, I, it's it, this is the question that I'm I'm probably most interested in. Right. It, what we don't know is whether if take Westworld, whether if you go and play around in, in Westworld, whether that is just an indication of how callous you are or whether it could actually desensitize you to that behavior towards real humans or whether it's a really healthy outlet. If you have violent tendencies, you can go and you can beat the crap out of this really lifelike robot and you know that you're not hurting a real person and maybe that makes you a much better person in real life. You've gotten all of your aggressions out. And we just have no idea what direction this goes in. And the reason I think it's important to talk about long before we have any sort of Westworld uh, like, you know, theme park is because we already see, you know, we we see these children's toys that behave in a really lifelike way. I, I have this this baby dinosaur at home that will cry if you mistreat it and and really mimic in a in a very convincing way that it's in pain. And you have to wonder, you know, whether there's reasons to prevent your kids from beating up the robot, the reasons that go beyond just, you know, obviously you want to teach your kids to not destroy things um, that are expensive. And and we don't know. And, and it gets particularly. So one of the things that I think we could see in the near future and have literally no idea what to do with is child sized sex robots. What do we do with that? That's an arresting phrase that isn't often spoken on on this podcast or any other. Child-sized sex robots. So this would be as a therapy for pedophiles or just how do you envision this market even emerging? Well, I mean, we already have. There was, I think in 2013, Canadian authorities seized a child-sized sex doll at the border that a Canadian had or, had ordered from Japan. And so you know, once we have robots on the market that people can buy, the question is, should those be legal or not? And if you look at there's there's some analogy here to virtual child pornography, which is, you know, pornography made completely virtually with no real children involved. And countries have come down with on very different sides of whether this should be legal or not. In the United States, it's legal. The Supreme Court has said, First Amendment, you know, there's no actual harm here that has to be legal. Other countries have said no fucking way. Like, we can't mm. allow this. It's disgusting. And uh, I think nobody has any idea whether allowing it would actually help help protect real children because it would provide an outlet for people or whether it would encourage and normalize and propagate the behavior. And once you have robots, which, again, bring this to a new level because of this visceral physicality that they have. And, and, and we will have this, right? I mean, I see no reason why this wouldn't happen in the next decade and we don't know what to do with it. So that's mm. why I'm, I think research in these areas um, or, or just generally in the areas of how these lifelike robots can 
shift and change our behaviors in positive and negative ways is so important right now? It's a fascinating question. I think the, now I'm about to express an opinion on virtual child pornography. This is a topic I have not thought much about, but I'm going to recklessly say that I think this is pretty clear what the right stance is here. And it is what you just described as being the the U.S. one. The obvious problem with child pornography is that a child was harmed in the creation of it and is harmed by the thing being out in the world thereafter. But this just is like a classic slippery slope situation. If you are going to outlaw virtual, which is to say completely fictional child pornography, then you have to outlaw somebody drawing something that is sufficiently lifelike. Where does that sort of thing stop if artwork can become the equivalent of having actually victimized a child and, and recorded it on film? I, I just don't see how you, what the stopping point is if you're going to debate that question. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm inclined to agree with you. But then when you bring robots into it, so coming back to Westworld, if the question is, does it make people more callous or make them kind of used to a certain behavior if they go in and, you know, they rape these female robots, uh, if, if that makes them more likely to go out and then, you know, get, get a taste for raping real women, you know, obviously that's not good. And that's also something that we could imagine happening, although we have no evidence for it. So mm. I, and and I realize that this is this is a slightly bad comparison because we know so little about the psychology of pedophilia. But it, is it possible that using a robot could whet people's appetites or get them used to it or get them wanting more? We don't know. You could imagine it going both ways, and then you would just have to sort of count the bodies to see where the balance should swing if you're just worried about the numbers of people who get victimized as a result. I mean, so <laughs> what, what else are you worried about? I just don't know what that does to the human mind and human ethical norms you know, over the course of decades and beyond. But it's not clear to me that the only negative consequences can be scored in terms of the numbers of people who get raped as a result. Yeah, I would agree with you. It just seems like a giant roll of the dice psychologically. Yeah, I, I think I've, I feel like sexuality is still such a mystery to us generally um, and very under-researched. So it's really not clear to me also how, how fluid or, or flexible our, our uh, sexual preferences are. So if you give people more options, will that just reflect their underlying preferences or will it actually change over time, you know, the sexual relationships or, or uh, preferences that we have? and. I'm not sure we know the answer to that. You could imagine it getting really weird, I mean, or, or weirder than we've just described, because obviously something like bestiality is, I got to think, the fringe of the fringe of the fringe sexually, and such a... <laughs> have, you, have you been on the internet, Sam? I haven't been in that quadrant that would alert me to the fact that my neighbors are having sex with their pets, but people are going to be raping aliens or being raped by them. So just yesterday, I was looking up laws on uh, bestiality mm -hmm. um, for a similar reason, which was I was curious whether, you know, sex robots shaped like animals, whether that would be legal to sell or not. And um, 
It turns out that you're now on some list. I'm convinced. Oh, I'm sure I was already. <laughs> like I already have some FBI file. I'm sure. Um, but yeah, yeah, it is interesting googling for that type of stuff. Um, but it, it turns out that bestiality is legal in a lot of countries, but distributing pornography of it is not, which surprised me. I had no idea. Yeah, I, I would say that's a stark sign of confusion. But yes, yeah. But I mean, we already do have some weird sex toys out there. Like there, there are Twilight dildos that you can put in the freezer so that you can pretend to be having sex with a vampire. Or um, I think Fleshlight, uh, you know, the Fleshlight thing, which is this uh, sex toy, like vagina. It looks like a big flashlight. The first time I, I went on Joe Rogan's podcast when he was not nearly as big a podcaster as he is now, and his sponsor, his, I think, only notable sponsor at that point was the Fleshlight. And <laughs> being as square as I am and worried about the mismatch between his sponsorship needs at that point and my budding career as a public intellectual, I said, listen, Joe, I'm happy to do your podcast, but there's no way I'm coming on there 30 seconds after you just shill for the fleshlight. That's kind of funny. Was that like, were you so, um, like, I don't, I don't know at what point you got into topics that I'm sure get you a lot of hate mail from all sorts of people. Was that before then? And, and yet you were more afraid of of a sexual a sex toy than some of the like religion and other topics that you that you willingly delve into. Yeah, no, no, I was I was well into all those controversial topics, but it just seemed like the mismatch between the flashlight and talking about jihadism or whatever, whatever I was going to talk about with him. It just seemed oh. it just seemed too insane. So. <laughs> Well, oh, anyway, all I wanted to say is that uh, they told me that one of their bestsellers at the time, back when I talked to them, was a blue one because of uh, the movie Avatar. I guess I tapped into the, the Jungian archetype of just how weird things are, are going to get here. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I guess it shouldn't. This is of a piece with transhumanism on some level. I mean, just the idea that we are only homo sapiens more or less by accident, and we're not going to be them for long. We are building a different future for ourselves, both by interacting with technology to the degree that we do, and you know, ultimately, when genetic engineering becomes commonplace, we will be free to not merely tattoo ourselves, but actually refine our biology all the way down to the studs. And you know, I guess that's not, on some level, playing with the boundary of humanness and what is, you know, what humans feel like interacting with sexually and otherwise, there's no way to avoid that. That's just what we're going to do. We're doing it already. Yeah, I think that's true. And it actually, yeah, it strikes me that, you know, long before we get to Westworld level robots, we might have seen a level of human enhancement that kind of changes the whole conversation about what being human really is, and maybe even changes our thinking on it, uh, so that once once we do reach the point where we have robots that are basically just like us, we might be thinking about it in a different way already. The other piece here, which we're not talking about much, although I've talked about it a lot on my podcast, is the AI piece that you really would need to feel that you're in the presence of something just like you or better. Obviously, all the robots we have now and probably will have for a while are, they may be superhuman on some level. They may be, presumably if you stuck a calculator in them, they would be 
they would be superhuman for arithmetic, but they're not nearly human across the board, and yet they're still kind of pushing around our intuitions of relationship. Let's talk for a moment about the application that I think most people think of when they're worried about the ethics of using robots, and that would be everything related to the military, whether you're talking about autonomous drones or robots that could take the place of soldiers on the ground, those Boston Dynamics kind of pack animal robots we've seen that are frankly fairly scary once they start moving fast. What's going on there, and (laughs) how much do you think about military applications of robot technology? Yeah, I actually have a lot of friends who do much more work on specifically military robotics and and the ethics of that. But I I basically so I mean there's there's kind of a tension there where you know any new technological development has the potential to save lives but also take lives in new ways. And there's a lot of discussion currently around autonomous weapon systems. So the idea that a robot or a machine could make a determination and kill someone without a direct command being issued or or just the development of technology that that is capable of of doing that um that people have been calling for this to be banned uh there's conversations at the UN um ongoing about this and it is you know one side says look if we have robots that can make very targeted decisions about who to take out, then we might actually save a lot of lives that way. And on the other hand, people are saying you can't you can't do that because it removes it removes a responsibility for harm that does occur in a way that is unethical and, you know, possibly even illegal. <laughs> I believe that for war crimes, for example, you need to show intent. And if it's a machine that commits a war crime, hmm. uh, it's it's much harder to show intent for that type of thing. So so generally, and it's not just in the military, if you look at the police um, getting increasingly technologically advanced, there is some concern about it gradually removing people from having to pull a trigger themselves and, and what that does to our decision making as you know, law enforcement or in the military. Well, that last question, what it does to our decision-making, strikes me as highly relevant. There's a tension here. Like, just imagine robots being much better soldiers than humans at a certain point. I think that will almost certainly happen, you know, maybe not in our lifetime, but at some point when AI is sufficient, then you can imagine that, yeah, you're talking about a robot sniper or a robot entry-level soldier who just will not shoot the hostage ever, right? He's not under the same kind of time pressure because he or she or it is not worried about getting shot himself. Presumably it will be much more accurate than a human shooter shooting under stress. So it's easy to see how you will save innocent life with robot soldiers. But on the other side, talking about human decision-making now, there's the obvious concern that when... We're not putting our sons and daughters or ourselves in harm's way to fight a war. We will be much more likely to fight wars and therefore much more likely to fight unnecessary wars and get lots of people killed just because we have a robot army that can now do it and we can stay here and keep shopping and keep having sex with our blue (laughs) alien robots and our robot kids as we plunge into the deviants at the end of the world. 
you seem to have flagged a concern more at the midpoint of these two issues, which is the chain of command intentionally being relevant. And I guess this is this is far beyond what happens in the military or law enforcement. There's just this question of who is responsible really for a robot that misbehaves. If your robot gets someone killed, where do we locate the responsibility for that? If that becomes actually impossible to specify, is that a problem? So, I mean, there there are two aspects to this. This is the so the more practical aspect is that I think I think international law specifies certain things, um, and international law is uh, you know very hard to change, but specifies certain things like intent for war crimes, which if you can just remove yourself from having made the decision and have a robot, if if the robot makes some sort of mistake that turns out to be a war crime, then no one can be held responsible legally. Um, so that's that's a problem that people are worried about. But then there's, there's the more general ethical issue of how do you assign responsibility for harm if the chain of causality becomes so complex with these machines? And is it the programmer's fault? Is it, you know, the, the the person who manufactured a certain part that malfunctioned? Was it the person who who decided to use the robot in a certain way? And as as machines are more and more able to kind of make decisions on their own and it becomes less clear how they came to the decision that they made, it's it gets more difficult, I think, to really, you know, assign blame to someone in a way that it, it, not just in, in terms of, you know, needing to needing to punish someone out of out of anger but but uh, assigning liability for harm uh you know even in like a financial sense or in a you know someone needs to internalize the the risk for for some of these actions just what happens now with a dumb ordinary ape driven car let's say when the the brakes fail but it's not this is not part of a a general problem with this type of brake it's just your brakes failed and got somebody killed. There's no recall necessary. There's no general culpability from the the manufacturer. Where do we locate blame in that case? We we have systems that work to locate blame, and 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 in that case, you know, you would be blamed, and then you have probably some recourse against the car manufacturer. And we have all sorts of systems in place, like product liability and and ways to to assign blame for what happens. And and. They work really well, and they they will these systems will also work when we add robots into the mix. But it might at some point make sense to reevaluate this in some cases. So I'm thinking I, I'm actually I, I think that a really good analogy for um, how to treat robots under the law might be looking to animals and the way that we've treated animals over you know the past centuries. Uh, there have been all sorts of different ways that we assign responsibility for, mm. you know, people who own an animal that causes harm. Uh, going so far as there there used to be even laws that uh, if your ox um, trampled, you know, your neighbor's corn, then your ox could go on trial for yeah. that itself. Yeah, and that, there are h- hilarious cases of, I mean, now hilarious, maybe they weren't hilarious at the time, but animals being tried and even executed for their culpability for their crimes. Right. And, and like, I'm not advocating that for robots at all, but I'm just saying that we've we've dealt with the same problem with these like autonomous creatures that can do things and cause harm, but are ultimately need to be in in the responsibility of someone, like in someone's realm of responsibility. 
Um, and, and maybe, and I, I haven't researched this extensively, but maybe looking to some of that could help us solve some of these problems with autonomous robots. So when we imagine the, the robot becoming just much more effective than a person in that role, which is presumably why we would be using it in the first place, right? So once autonomous cars are so much better than people that you just have to be an idiot not to be driving around in one or irresponsible, almost by definition, mm-hmm. not to be driving around in one, well, then how are we going to feel about the few occasions on which autonomous cars wind up killing somebody? I think we will have ingested the, the fact that up until that point, everyone was still at much lower risk than they would have otherwise been. I mean, this is still just the best game in town as far as driving cars. And obviously, we want, we'll want to fix whatever defect may account for, for the death in this case. But the whole phenomenon or industry of autonomous vehicles, there'll be no temptation to call it into question at that point, because we will already know that lives are being saved every hour that we use these things. Leaving aside the concern I voiced at one point of being tempted to fight more wars because we don't have skin in the game, don't you think that once we know that these systems that we're using are better than people for what we're using them for, we'll view every malfunction or every instance of bad luck as, on some level, just that, just something that is for which nobody's really culpable in, in, in the ordinary sense? Wow, you, you have such faith in the rationality of people. It's... Yeah, that's... <laughs> I don't... I'm, start, I'm starting to worry about that, actually. That's, that's becoming a professional hazard. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that would be the ideal situation, but I honestly think people are going to freak out. I think that even though autonomous vehicles are going to cause, you know, a, a, a tiny, tiny percentage of the accidents that we previously dealt with, I mean, we have so... I don't even... I don't know the numbers, but, you know, it's insane how many people die through car accidents nowadays. It's 30 plus thousand every year in the US. And I believe globally, it's something like 2 million, which sounds like an insane number. But I believe that is the number for fatalities on the roads worldwide every year. Yeah. I I, I mean, that's that's crazy, right? And yet we, we drive around and that's normal and we take that into account. But even though autonomous vehicles are going to cause far fewer accidents, I think the types of accidents that they will cause, even though it's just like 0.0001% of the accidents that we previously had, I think people are really going to freak out about those accidents. And I mean, there's all these psychological biases about, you know, being in control or believing that, you know, you're a better driver than a machine, even though it's clear from the statistics that the machine is better. And, and, and I think we're very susceptible to that. I mean, I do have faith that this is a generational thing and that new generations will grow up with like autonomous vehicles as the new normal. And then, you know, the few accidents that happen are just life. But mm. for, for us now, I, I don't think that people are going to be as accepting of those mistakes um, as, as you think. <laughs> well, actually, we have a little data on this already because there have been, I think now, two fatalities with Teslas, the Model S, which is autonomous in some modes and that has been used, it seems, inappropriately by at least one driver and, you know, he got himself killed. And there was another death. I forget how that was explained. But prior to that, my concern was, yeah, exactly along the lines you just sketched, that the first time someone dies in a Model S on autopilot or 
in any other autonomous car. I pictured it being front page news in every paper on earth and that the the backlash would be so strong that it would just set the whole industry back a decade and to the contrary i mean what what has seems to have happened tesla itself didn't even blink it hasn't even set tesla back in its autonomous driving program and Everyone is just kind of racing as fast as they can to get into this end zone where they have full autonomy that is safer than than a human driver. Obviously, there could be some accident in the future, which would be so terrible and so unlike an accident that a that a human being say would be liable to be involved in that that it might cause us to rethink this for a time. But I feel like we we've already encountered the robot-driven car fatality, and it was barely news. And maybe uh, my I'm very biased because obviously I pay attention to robot news, but it seemed to me that that did make a lot of a lot of news and a lot of attention. Like I know perfectly well that two Tesla accidents happened and exactly how they happened and the guy's head got sliced off. And like, like I know all this stuff. Right. I have no idea what other accident, car accidents have happened in the United States in the past year. But that's the point. I mean, it was so easy for Tesla to say, listen, in the time that we've been talking about these two accidents, two things are true. One is there have been hundreds of other accidents today, right, or this hour, you know, if you're speaking globally, where people were killed and maimed in equally horrific ways based on how bad humans are at driving cars. And also, we have now i don't know what it is but some you know millions of of man hours of people driving on autopilot and now i think enough data to show that given the way that people are using the admittedly totally imperfect and inadequate self-driving capacities of a model s each one of those hours is a safer hour than without the autopilot Here's the caveat. You you can still use this incorrectly and get yourself and other people killed. But even this, this really glitchy autonomy as it is now seems to be saving lives. I feel like that, if it was going to have a huge effect, it would have had it on the the company that was culpable for it, Tesla. And it seems to me that it, not only has it not had an effect, it didn't even slow their use of the technology. I mean, they they didn't say okay, we were wrong to roll this out. This was premature. We're going to go back to the, the drawing board and we, you know, we'll get back to you in a few years when we think we've worked out the kinks. No, they just pushed out their next version more or less on schedule as far as I can tell. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And, and, and I don't think that this is going to slow the rollout of autonomous vehicles at all. Like we are headed in that direction. That is happening. And I think for the most part, you know, people do understand that it's generally safer. But I still think that psychologically people are going like there's going to be way more attention around these accidents. And and the reason it didn't affect Tesla, I mean, that does surprise me a little bit. Like I would I would like to know some stats on whether people like in the wake of the accident might have disabled their um, autonomous driving systems mm. for a while or, you know, whether right now the market for these cars is people who are so, you know, excited about this new technology or better informed that it doesn't have any any impact on on their current market but it might have an impact on like, you know, a more 
broad rollout of autonomous vehicles. I, I, but again, I don't think I don't think it's going to stop autonomous vehicles from getting rolled out in in a very, very rapid way um, and and becoming part of our lives. But the one thing that I do know is that I I I have talked to some large auto manufacturers, and it is interesting to hear them say that the one thing or the main thing that they're concerned about and the main problem that they see is not, you know, harmonizing European, uh, you know, road legislation or insurance or, you know, any of the things that you would think are, are the problems. No, their problem is the public's perception of these accidents. Yeah. It's, it's precisely, that's precisely the thing that they're worried about managing and that they're unsure of how to manage. Yeah, I, I guess we should say there are accidents and then there are accidents. The ones that I'm aware of with Tesla, it seemed the driver himself got himself killed, at least the, the one I know the details of, that was the case. It seemed to be, it was easy to assign blame to him in how he was using the technology. But the first time an errant Tesla or any other robot car just mows down some kids in a crosswalk, I think the response could be very different. Then you you would have the living driver as well to talk to in the aftermath. And, you know, it could just be a, an absolute horror show in terms of the public perception of that. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess the certain applications of robot technology are much more fraught than others. As much as the safety concerns of a imperfect technology are you know, very interesting to us, it's just as obvious that eventually something like autonomous cars will be better than people, and they'll really there will be no argument against using them and using them in every situation that we can. But that what we were talking about earlier with you know, sex with robots or even war with robots, there's other other concerns where you just get the sense that people will be changed by their interaction with these machines and their sense of of what they should be doing with their lives and what what societies should be doing could change as a result. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are a lot of unknowns there, which is, uh, you know, sometimes people are like, well, what's different about robots than other technologies that we've seen in the past? Like we've, we've seen a, a lot of new technologies come and, and, and it's, it's the same old, same old, it's the same questions. But I, I do think that the way that we viscerally psychologically respond to robots puts them in a special category that raises some new questions that we have not actually explored previously, even though there are parallels to some things. But really, the, the, and that's why, that's why I'm honestly so, still so fixated on physical robots, even though I know that the current, you know, currently it's very popular to talk about AI. And I'm, I'm just as, you know, unqualified, I would say, as, as anyone else to talk about AI. Most of the people talking about it right now don't actually have a background in AI. And, and you know, I mean, present company excluded, like you've, you've done a lot of thinking on this. Feel and- free to include me. I, that's more than true. This is a, just the absolute frontier of where technology and its pace of change is taking us. And the most interesting questions aren't necessarily the technological ones which is to say the most interesting questions about AI and, and robots may not be, in fact, I think, aren't the details of how they will be built. It's just the fact that if we continue to make progress of any sort at any pace, eventually 
they will be built. And eventually these dreams or nightmares will be realized. And we need people from every relevant background thinking about the implications. Like you said, it's not, it's less about the technology itself as it is about what it is to be human, what society you want to create, how, what, what our rules for interacting with each other are. So I look at some of this and I, I, I really wish we had better structures um, in academia to accommodate some of the interdisciplinarity that is required to think through some of these questions. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm very fortunate to be at the Media Lab and at, at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard, which are, I mean, those are two places that are incredibly focused on bringing together people from different disciplines. But I think academia has a problem right now that, that that's not really encouraged or accommodated in a lot of areas, but it's it's what we need in in figuring out this future. Can you give me a plausible dream scenario where things work out, where retrospectively we will all feel it's a good thing we built this technology? Now, speaking specifically of robots as advanced as they're going to get, and can you sketch a plausible nightmare scenario where this is we do this badly in hugely consequential ways, but we we don't really have our wits about us early enough to stop doing it, and we're kind of we're left to live with the results. Oh man, we could like take another two hours to sketch out these <laughs> these two worlds. So I guess the the utopia would be that we really find ways to lean into the positive effects of these technologies because we are seeing robots being used in really awesome ways, right? You, you know, we, we have robots making things much safer for people, even in areas where they're, where they're disrupting labor markets and taking jobs. They're, they're often taking jobs that, you know, humans shouldn't be doing um, and, and that are unsafe for people to do in, in some cases. You have social robots that can help with education and health and that that we may be able to integrate into our lives as these awesome tools to engage us and, and help us with things. Um, you know, autonomous vehicles, much safer. There, there's so many ways, and, and I, I'm seeing a lot of them, in which we can develop robots to actually be helpful and and help progress and and maybe even help with our general <laughs> happiness. I, I'm certainly very excited about a lot of robots and they, they do make me very happy. Uh, the the dystopia is, you know, like like any new technology or tool that we integrate into our lives, it can be it can be uh, misused or have unintentional effects that we don't anticipate. And you know, one thing that strikes me is that a lot of the ways that um, robots, also also AI systems, currently currently learn or currently you know display intelligent behavior is by learning off of large sets of data. And so there's there's certainly going to be a trend to collect more data, which can be a good or a bad thing. I mean, from a from a privacy perspective, it concerns me that so much of this technology relies on collecting personal data about us or the intimate details of our homes in order to uh, perform their function in in a in a way that is compelling to us. So I, I think that's definitely a, a kind of a, a dystopia that we we don't place enough emphasis on privacy and data security in constructing these systems. Then there's you know the the way that these 
um, data sets can be biased and and that we can program biases into machines that just end up kind of perpetuating things that you know we already struggle with, like racial biases or gender biases. Um, there are a lot of ways to uh, you know to to bake those into our systems without even realizing um, in ways that are hard to change later on. and And I see again and again that you know I, I used to think, oh, well, the people developing the technology should just like, create the stuff and then we'll figure out later on how to regulate it and how to deal with it as a society. But, uh, you know, now that I work very closely to people who are developing technology, I realize that standards get set really early on. Mm. And if you don't have people thinking about, you know, for example, data security from a very early stage in designing a robot, then you could set a standard that is very hard to change later on that that may not be ideal and 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 for the most part the people i work with aren't they want to know about this stuff but they're not trained to think of these things um they have kind of an engineering mindset and and bringing in people from the social sciences who are like oh what about this oh have you thought about this is is like the most incredible incredibly helpful thing that i see and and i don't see enough of it happening honestly mm. so so that's that's you know part of the the near term dystopia that that I that I would see in robotics. Yeah, well, it is fascinating that that the privacy concern is not something that anyone really tends to think about when thinking about the issues we've been discussing. Just imagine a robot which is something you're interacting with physically, but it's a computer, obviously, and it could have access to all of your data and all and just as you said, a functionally infinite amount of data online, this is something that now knows much more about you and people like you than any human being. And that could be an incredibly compelling experience, but it could also be one where, as we suggested early on, you, you, you could be manipulated by whatever agents or corporations have a hand in building you this thing in the first place. It's a very weird picture of bringing something into your life, which inevitably you will feel in relationship to. I mean, again, once you bring AI into the picture, you may feel like you've brought the, the smartest, most perceptive human being you've ever met into your life. Yet you now paradoxically own it as a slave, right? It can do you know, boring work for you and yet knows everything about you and anticipates your needs better than you do and can remember your life and your your own ideas better than you can in many cases, right? It's it's read all your emails, say. And yet this is the thing that receives updates from Google or who, whoever built it. Yeah. And, and and stores all your data in the cloud yeah. in a potentially not secure way. And, you know, companies have every incentive to collect as much data as possible because that will make the robot function better. Um, and and you have every incentive to give the robot data so that it remembers your preferences and whatnot. And and but once that data is collected, you know there's a lot of other stuff that that can be used for as well. And you can sell that data to others. And so so it is a little bit concerning that I think the incentives here are really misaligned in a in a way that would require some intervention. Yeah. Well, when incentives are misaligned, you are guaranteed to get something weird that you don't want happening. <laughs> so I'm very happy that you're spending your time thinking about all this. 
it's a fun topic. Listen, thank you, Kate. I love talking about this, and and this is this problem obviously is not going away. So when things get scarier or more interesting, I hope to have you back on, and we can figure out what to do about it. That would be fun. Thank you so much, Sam. <laughs>